our trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there. Welcome to the show. You know, this is one of those days where I got up and I, I kind of found myself asking, okay, why am I doing this again? Why do I open my big yapper and just, you know, talk about stuff and hope that someone out there somewhere is like, yes, yeah, that's that's exactly what needed to be said. I'm not sure I have an answer for you other than uh, I just, I have a strong sense that we live in a time where the truth is not so easy to come by. I know there are people out there who are searching. By the way, I don't think it's everybody. In fact, truth be told, I think that it's probably a relatively small number of people who have made truth a priority. I think uh, Albert J. Nock referred to them as the remnant, but uh, that's, that's probably an accurate depiction of who they are. And those are the people to whom I am speaking on a day-to-day basis. You may not believe you're part of the remnant. Some people may actively, oh, no, I'm not. No, I'm not. I don't join up with any clubs. That's okay. All I'm saying is if you are someone for whom understanding the world around you not just so, okay, now I've got it, you know, but so that you can actually do something to make it better. You're definitely in the right place. So with that with that in mind, let's, uh, let's jump right into the show today. Paul Rosenberg has been one of my favorite writers for well over the last decade. And it's because he has this incredible gift for cutting through all the complexity and getting to the heart of what really matters. So when I saw his, uh, this was actually a recent rewrite and release of an essay he had uh, done sometime earlier, but it's so good, and it's something I think that, that most of us need to hear at some point. The title is, So You've Been Made Superfluous, and he says, in the U.S., something like 100 million people have, quote, dropped out of the workforce, and the situation is often worse in Europe. The ruling systems of the West have made these people superfluous. Now, he says, if you're one of them, I'm sorry, it's a horrible thing. But if you think this is your fault, he says you're wrong. You are willing and capable of productive work, but the system has its own needs and they no longer involve you. Now listen to this next line. So please be clear on this. The system doesn't care about you for anything but voting. That would explain a lot, wouldn't it? Wouldn't that explain how the system operates and why the news media focuses on what it focuses on? Oh, of course. Well, it's all about the system, the system, the system, which is a parasite, the system is. (laughs) So anyway, it just needs you to vote. As far as the rest of the stuff, well, yeah, whatever. But as long as you're voting for us, right, that's that's what counts. Now, from here, Paul Rosenberg quotes a few lines from the song Blue Collar Man by Styx. He says, see if any of these lines resonate with you. Give me a job. Give me security. Give me a chance to survive. I'm just a poor soul in the unemployment line. My God, I'm hardly alive. My mother and father, my wife and my friends, you see them laugh in my face. But I've got the power and I've got the will. I'm not a charity case. Now, Paul Rosenberg says, my answer to you or my message to you is this. You do have the power and you do have the will, but... The system has no place for you. If you want more than that, 
You'll have to make it yourself. This is one of the reasons I love his take on things. It's it's not about, well, if you just do this and you know go to the right person and get permission from somebody in authority, then you can move forward in your life. No. He says, you have the power. You have the will. You can do it. The system isn't going to help you do it. So if you want it to happen, then you've got to do it yourself. So this is how it's done. He says, we've all been seduced into discounting our own will. We've been trained to abandon it to the system. And as long as that pattern holds, the only hope you have is that the system will reform itself to suit you. And that almost never happens. So how many times do we play the sucker before we stop believing political promises? He says, let's make this clear. Your government has no idea what to do with you aside from keeping you permanently distracted and giving you just enough handouts to survive. So if you want things to get better, you'll have to exercise your own will. Yes, he says, I know you've been taught never to hold your own thoughts supreme. And being taught that repetitively, you did what everyone else did. You demoted your own mind and obeyed teacher. But he says, once you reclaim your will, once you start to act on your own judgment, you will have power. Now, the next point he makes is that words are important or impotent, rather. Sorry. (laughs) Well, the doctor says I'm impotent. I better act like it. That's why I got me this limo. (laughs) Okay. He says, please understand that changing your situation requires action, not words. You understand what he's saying here? Complaining is not going to be enough to make things change. You can play with words forever to no effect. That's just what the system wants. Write letters to your congressman. Support one of the talking faces presented to you and so on without end. But when you get up and act, not only does the world change, you change. Now he says the fear of acting is a lot like the fear of public speaking. It can be debilitating, but nevertheless, we have to do it. And he says, please understand, I'm talking about acting on your own will. Acting on someone else's very fine plan squeezes your will out of the equation. Now, I just have to hit pause here for a second and ask, well, why would people, you know, why would they deep six their own will and wait for somebody else to tell them what to do? And I'm not not sure there's any one right answer, but I can tell you, in some ways it's easier when someone else is making the decisions, right? Well, I don't have to deal with the responsibility if something fails or whatever, then it's not really my fault. It's not really my problem. That's what people who don't trust themselves sound like. So if you want to learn how to act on your own will, rather than just wait for someone else's very fine plan to tell you this is exactly what you need to do, here are some suggestions. Now he says, I'm only listing these to give you initial ideas, so don't misconstrue this. This is not a plan that someone else is giving you. In fact, isn't it interesting? If you really want to act on your own, if you want to learn to follow your own will, you can't wait for somebody else to show you how it's done or to spell out this is what you'll need to do. You've got to find the courage to make your feet start moving all by yourself. But you have to be the one who chooses. You have to be the one who acts. You have to accept responsibility. And this is what Paul, Ro- Paul Rosenberg recommends. Do things like start using bit- Bitcoin. Teach your friends how to use it. By the way, just as an aside here, the way that AI is advancing right now, I'm thinking that uh, it might be a really good idea for those who are you know, trying to stay on the the you know, cutting edge of what's happening to, to maybe look a little closer at blockchain technology. 
it's going to be more and more a part of the world that uh, that we are you know headed into next he talks about building mesh networks start building mesh networks and private internet systems this is part of that blockchain technology as well start te- <laughs> excuse me start teaching cryptography start using other distributed technologies he also says start uh, homeschooling your children or tutoring others. Start growing and trading your own food. Do you like where this is headed? Turn off the TV and start reading books. Okay, this next one hurts, but I also think it's true. Turn off political radio and start listening to lectures and audiobooks. The other option is to do what the system expects of superfluous people. Watch TV, adopt the, narrative that it appro- adopt the narratives it promotes, maintain your Facebook addiction, and die young. Paul Rosenberg says, please choose something better. Pretty powerful stuff. By the way, that last part about turning off talk radio, I, I've got some really strong mixed feelings on this because, you know, it's hard for me. I'm coming up on my 39-year anniversary in radio. It'll be this, uh, this coming December. 39 years behind the microphone. And it pains me to admit that uh, terrestrial radio is on its way out. And and it's, it's hard to. I, I was, I've, the last couple of days, I've had a chance to listen to a little more talk radio than, than I normally do. And I'm not saying this to, to, you know, sound like, well, yes, I've outgrown all of this, but it's, it's discouraging to me how much of what drives conversation on talk radio, and I'm talking at the local level, right up to the national level, is fear, anger, and enemy-driven thinking. Now, I'm not trying to, you know, call anybody out and tell you they're stupid for thinking this way. I'm just saying that appealing to those baser emotions is something talk radio does and has done extremely well. I know from firsthand experience how easy it is to build a large, loyal audience by throwing red meat on a daily basis and, you know, throwing a lot of it. But at some point I reached uh, this this decision that I can't keep doing this and feel like I'm actually accomplishing anything good. Yes, I'm getting people riled up. It's fun. We have a lot of verbal throwdowns on the on the air. But what's it really accomplishing? And my honest answer was not much. So, I don't have time for the uh, contrived drama. I don't have time for enemy-driven thinking. I need to trust my will. I need to act. And I need to start today. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. By the way, I've got a very interesting mix of of articles I'm sharing today. If you want to check them out in greater detail... This is where I would recommend my show notes. Go to my website, thebrianheidshow.com. This is where you can access everything that, uh, every article that I've referenced. I, I generally, it's rare that I don't get them in the show notes, but typically they're in there and you can do a little further research for yourself. So I'm watching with some interest, some, because I don't spend a whole lot of time on politics, but wow, it is clear that, uh, you know, the elections are just bringing out the absolute worst in people. And it's because our elections have essentially become popularity contests between individuals. In other words, we're much more focused on the personalities than we are 
about the choices between what kind of principles do we want represented by those who hold elected office. I've got a great article here from the Foundation for Economic Education. This was actually published earlier this year. Why the cult of the presidency must end. I don't know about you, but the fact they call it a cult kind of of rings true to me. Cruz Marquis says, The president sits atop an executive branch octopus which has wrapped itself around seemingly every corner of American life. Here's what he says. He says, There's something terribly wrong with the presidency in America. And at the risk of sounding wistful and passé, the institution was much better in the distant past. If any more light needs to be shed on the albino elephant in the room, the following will do so. And from here, he talks about the expansion of presidential power. President Biden's first two weeks in office broke a record in terms of ruling by the pen, with him signing 24 executive orders, more than even Franklin Roosevelt signed in his first month, who previously held the record for the most executive orders signed right out of the gate. Now, the president also has immense war powers, allowing him to circumvent Congress and not even bother to declare war in order to go to war. The last time Congress was consulted on declaring war was in the summer of 1942 with regards to Hungary, Romania, and Bulgaria, minor allies of Nazi Germany. Periodically, the federal legislature is consulted in the form of the Authorization for the Use of Military Force, or AUMF, which grants plenary power to the president to use some unspecified amount of force to pursue a nebulous objective over an undefined time. That's pretty much a blank check. Case in point, there are still active AUMFs for opposing communist aggression in the Middle East from 1957, from the Gulf War in 1991, and for the Iraq War of 2002. Military operations continue to be carried out under the auspices of these orders from decades or generations past. By the way, note to government, the 1950s called, they'd want their AUMF back. But the president sits atop an executive branch octopus wrapped around seemingly every corner of American life. To this end, the IRS hired 87,000 taxmen. That's the profession, by the way, that Christ often referred to as arch sinners to regulate the financial life of the country. For perspective, this number is larger by tens of thousands than the total annual recruitment of the United States Army. The IRS immediately put the new agents and tens of billions in new funding to good use to announce a new reporting system for tipped workers to ensure every cent they earn as gratuity is reported. As some witty internet denizens observed, the rich waitresses must pay their fair share, too. The president oversees and approves a spending bonanza, which is an annual outlay sitting at $6 trillion, a number which cannot even be comprehended. Indeed, much of the indifference towards federal spending can be attributed to the disconnect between the average plebeians who work for a living and do not deal with money denominated in billions and trillions. He says the average man, such as yours truly, knows it's very noticeable to spend $100 that 1000 is often undoable unless on payments, and anything beyond that number except for a car or house is outside his proverbial pay grade. After a certain point, the disconnect becomes so great that apathy naturally sets in. The late columnist Charles Krauthammer made a cogent suggestion about these unimaginable numbers. Quote, as we drift toward the financial abyss, or the fiscal fiscal abyss, rather, I I propose an interim measure, abolition of the words billion and trillion. 
words far too friendly to convey the enormity of the sums they are meant to denote. Politicians in particular should be forced to say thousand million for billion and thousand thousand million for the flip trillion. It is a linguistic crime that the easy two-syllable trillion hitched to a humble number like four should be permitted to express a debt that had William the Conqueror begun saving for it in 1066 at the rate of a million dollars a day would still be unpaid today. Holy cow, that kind of puts it in perspective. So back to the cult of the presidency. Cruz Marquis says the list goes on despite these crimes against the values which built America, those including but not limited to prudence, non-aggression to one's neighbors, liberty, individualism, morality, faithfulness, and justice. The presidency has become an icon of secular worship. One might say that the imperial presidency and its public adulation and fealty were inevitable with the empowering of the federal government at large. The president sits atop the executive branch, that collection of entities which are tasked with doing things at the federal level, the same entities responsible for doing anything that the other two branches authorize or mandate. Congress grows the executive by voting for a larger and more centralized state year in and year out, and the judiciary does the same by undermining the constitutional guidelines that prevent the enforcement apparatus from growing out of control. After a certain point... He says the executive grows itself by the creation of new agencies, which in turn create new regulations until the Code of Federal Regulations becomes longer than the U.S. Code. As the executive branch grows, its top dog in the White House will naturally become more influential and more powerful. The increasing power of the federal government also draws more eyes away from the subsidiary levels of government, which has the effect of artificially aggrandizing national over state and local politics. Even the general public is at least unconsciously aware that the U.S. is drifting toward unitary government and the submerging of the states into the whole, which is evidenced by the dearth of attention paid to state and local politics compared to the time lavished on national politics and the naturalization of, or the nationalization, rather, of key elections. So in essence, he says, as power flees from the periphery to the center, The stakes for control of the latter increase as he who controls it will control a growing portion of the output of the United States. As of now, government spending is 36% of gross domestic product, which means the state does indeed control a fraction of the economy so large that thinkers of yesteryear might have branded it as socialism. He who controls the center, in other words, the president, will naturally become the object of adulation and opprobrium for various political demographics in tandem and proportion with government power. Hatred and love are increasingly accurate to describe how average Americans feel about presidents and the intensity of the emotion will only rise as the malign and corrupted institution wraps its tentacles tighter yet around the American polity. Now he says, as doom and gloom as the above sounds, he also points out that decline is a choice and we the people can refuse to accede to it. In fact, he says, I'm reminded of an old lecture by Lou Rockwell included in his book, Speaking of Liberty, which was written two decades ago. It opened as follows. Every four years, as the November presidential election draws near, I have the same daydream that I don't know or care who the president of the United States is. On the surface, this is an odd statement from an intellectual, seeming to wish for blissful ignorance that modern politics can hardly provide but it has a deeper meaning which is so outside the mainstream that it's been lost. 
Imagine a world where the president doesn't sign 24 executive orders in two weeks, where he doesn't have plenary power to go to war whenever and wherever he wants, where his federal apparatus does not infect every corner of civil life, where his state does not spend $6,000 million a year. Imagine a world where government is not a behemoth, but instead a small, barely noticeable entity that one will rarely run across only well, one will run across only rarely in his life. I love it. There's more to that article, by the way. You can check it out in my show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. Again, why the cult of the presidency must end. I happen to agree, and not a moment too soon should it end. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I know that uh, right now it seems like there's a lot stacking up against us. And it's easy to feel discouraged. In fact, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just give you kind of a quick sample tease of the article of the day, which is uh, the drumbeat of, in- of trauma-inducing events in our lives. And, you know, the trauma-inducing events aren't necessarily things that just got out of control or somehow, you know, we just don't know how that happened. It was just a chance, random thing. No, I'm talking about the trauma that has been imposed by members of the ruling class. Now, this could go back to the COVID lockdowns, the vaccine mandates, the mask mandates. It could go to um, some of the various regulatory hoops that we have to jump through. It could go to the fact that right now we are staring what looks like a very real possibility of World War III erupting. None of us voted for that, by the way. I can't think of a single person, regardless of their political persuasion, who's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We definitely want to see broader war in the Middle East and, in fact, a global conflagration if possible. That is all being foisted on us by members of the ruling class. It's it's like they, they want it. I said it a long time ago. I know it seems cynical, but yes, I believe that they are wicked enough. They would start World War III. They would burn the world to ashes rather than willingly let go of power or allow themselves to be held accountable and removed from power. So the question that we have to ask, though, is, is it worth fighting for? I'm looking at an article here from Jim Quinn, who writes for The Burning Platform. Jim is one of my favorite analysts when it comes to the fourth turning. He's also very good at connecting dots in terms of literature and, you know, current events. I I really love his insights. So he has a quote here from J.R.R. Tolkien, the Fellowship of the Ring. I wish it need not have happened in my time, said Frodo. So do I, said Gandalf, and so do all who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given us. Now, Jim Quinn says, J.R.R. Tolkien in, wrote in his epic Lord of the Rings trilogy during the darkest, or he wrote his trilogy during the darkest days of World War II and in the midst of our last fourth-turning crisis. As a young man, he had experienced the horror of war on the Western Front during World War II, where all but one of his best friends were killed. Tolkien's novel documents the never-ending battle between good and evil. 
Now, there are many moments of, pe- of peril where the future of Middle-earth depended upon the bravery, courage, and tenacity of a few seemingly average hobbits. This was also true of various episodes during the Second World War, where the fortitude and courage of the average man turned the tide at Midway, Stalingrad, Normandy, Guadalcanal, and many other battles. So Jim Quinn says, It's becoming clear to me that we are both on the verge of a global war and likely civil war within a relatively short time frame. This is consistent with the expected timing based on the previous fourth turning crisis periods in history. Neil Howe, in his new book, The Fourth Turning is Here, also projects violence to increase over the next few years, with a likely climax in the 2030 to 2033 time frame. The climax will reveal the clear winners and losers from the coming conflicts. Now, of course, the entire world could lose if the psychopaths calling the shots are insane enough to initiate Armageddon. Now listen to what he says next. Jim Quinn says, I wish this fourth turning hadn't happened in my time. But we don't get to choose the times we inhabit. We are all unwilling participants in a historical crisis which will determine the fates of future generations and falling empires by creating heroes and villains who will occupy passages in history tomes read by school children a century from now during the next fourth turning. We can't avoid this fourth turning and turn time back to seasons gone by, just as once you enter the harsh, stormy, dark days of winter, you can't turn time back to the warm, peaceful, idyllic days of fall. He says we have to navigate the stormy days ahead, and all we can do is try to make the time we have left on this earth be worthwhile and make a difference. We are truly in an epic battle between good and evil. The Eye of Sauron, a.k.a. the Deep Surveillance Consortium and the morally bankrupt minions doing the bidding of the globalist Great Reset Cabal are the enemy of humanity and must be fought to the death. Now, while there is still some good in this world and it is worth fighting for, he says whether it be passive Irish democracy resistance, ridiculing and embarrassing the enemy, bartering to deny the government their taxes, growing your own food, raising your own livestock, or ultimately taking up arms when this crisis goes hot, we have to fight for what is good and decent in this world. Why else are we on earth than to to do whatever it takes to ensure our children and their children inhabit a planet where humanity, family, humility, and community are valued, while greed, depravity, selfishness, and glorifying the individual are scorned and discarded? Okay, he's pretty blunt in his assessment here. We are clearly headed toward global and domestic armed conflict. You just need to look around to see what's going on. Fear and denial are your internal enemy, which must be overcome to face the real enemy. And he says you should be paranoid because your own government is your enemy. The destroyers have seized control of our country and will not relinquish their love or their wealth rather, power and control unless we defeat them on the battlefield. This is kind of sobering, but he says war must be. It is our love for what we cherish. Is our love for that we cherish worth fighting for? That's the question each one of us gets to ask ourselves. And he says we will see shortly. He ends with another quote from J.R.R. Tolkien. War must be. While we defend our lives against a destroyer who would devour all, but I do not love the bright sword for its sharpness, nor the arrow for its swiftness, nor the warrior for his glory. I love only that which they defend. Which kind of brings us full circle to the idea of, okay, so what would you defend? 
And I realize I'm asking some pretty deep questions here. This is this may be uncomfortable for people who aren't in the habit of thinking about such things or at least even even contemplating, is there anything that I care enough about that I'd be willing to die, you know, in its defense? For a person who hasn't thought about that kind of thing, that could be that that could be almost an intimidating, you know, exercise to hold. Well, I don't know if I want to think about that kind of stuff. It sounds it sounds scary. Or what if I don't really believe in anything? Well, you know, that's the risk you're taking. I guess what I'm getting at is how often do you make quiet time where you can just be alone with your thoughts and 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 ponder on things? See, I'm terribly guilty of this too, and I have been up until just the last few years. I had a really good friend who said, hey, I've tried something that has really helped me, and he says, I've just learned to turn off music. Like when I'm in the car traveling or something, I don't just turn on the radio so I've got some background noise going on. I don't just, you know, turn it on so I've got something entertaining me, music or, you know, talk radio or whatever. He says, I turn it off. And I spend some time in my thoughts, evaluating who I am, what I think, why I feel the way that I do, why I believe what I believe. Now, you may say, well, that just sounds like a bunch of, you know, belly button gazing, you know, somebody wasting time. And, you know, I I guess it could seem that way. But I'm going to offer an alternative explanation. If you're one of those people who really believes that you were put here on this earth for something more than to simply be an employee, earn money, buy things, and then retire and, you know, run the clock out until you die. If you believe that there is a purpose behind your existence, meaning something that you are uniquely qualified to do, some way in which you are going to shape or change the world for the better, and it can only come from you, That kind of thing rarely is just going to drop out of your head like a, an invisible brick, you know, drop out of the sky, you know, under your head like a brick. It's not like, oh, yes, well, you know, I just figured it out in, in a matter of seconds and knew exactly the course that I was going to take. No, life is about discovering who you are, what you stand for, and then finding the courage to go after it. I mean, we could get into the whole hero's journey and so forth. I believe that's a real thing, and I think every one of us, in some ways, on our own hero's journey. By the way, if you're encountering opposition, if you're encountering really difficult situations that make you have to strive and strain beyond what you are currently, that's all part of the plan. That's part of how it works. Those tests and traps and trials and the ultimate challenge you face where it feels like it's you standing up to the entire universe. There's purpose behind that. And so to the best of my ability, I'm going to encourage you. Try to approach the the problems that that we face with that attitude. You don't have to solve them all. Nobody's laying that on your feet, you know, at your feet saying, okay, it's all yours, you know, take it away. Make it better. The biggest problem you've got to solve is figuring out who you are and what you stand for. After that, the decisions become a lot easier. That is, once you learn to trust your own will, and start taking action on your own. What would it take to get you to reclaim that sense of personal autonomy? This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, we are back. Final segment of today's show. By the way, I don't recommend uh, this often enough, but I'm going to throw this shameless plug out there for Substack. I have been on there now for about a year. It'll be a year, I guess, next month. And I have really enjoyed it. It has been a, a super experience, partly because it's forced me to, you know, take my own writing, the little feature I produce every day called Hide in Plain Sight. That's been fun. And I've enjoyed developing that. And actually, uh, it's, it's going to be going in some new directions here in the very near future. It's also given me the opportunity to connect up with other incredible writers and thinkers. That, to me, is probably the best thing. Uh, Michael Herman is one of them. And I don't know a lot about Michael other than I get his, uh, he's a pretty prolific writer, so I get his, his emails of uh, his latest columns and latest essays. This one that I'm about to share with you really struck me because I, look, I love to laugh. I love to make people laugh. I love comedians who can observe what's going on around us and, you know, help us to laugh even in the face of things that are sometimes, uh, shall we say, less than optimal. Michael Herman zeroes in on something that, uh, that I started picking up on a few years back. And that is, why is it that so much of the, so many of the, the really successful comedians, the ones who are just, you know, at the absolute top of their game, why do they always seem to be coming from a position of pain? It's like there's, there's trauma that has been happening in their lives, and they've somehow twisted that and turned it into something funny. I thought you might enjoy uh, Michael Herman's take on this, and he brings back some great memories in the process. He says, The creative side of the brain must be pre- preciously fragile. There must be a danger in the delicate connections, some requirement for a fine-tuning of the synapses firing. When the creative side works and is running at full speed and full production, it can produce the greatest art known to us all. But should it misfire? Should the connections become frayed? Things can become unhinged quickly. And the engine creating all that creativity can shut down, cease, fail. The creative side must be more Ferrari and less Ford truck. Now, when you think of creativity and perhaps uh, an art, perhaps your mind goes to the great painters or great musicians, artists who've produced works that inspire and have inspired for generations. But he says, my own thoughts on troubled artists run to comedy. He says, I was thinking about comedians from outside looking into their world. Some are of a fragile nature, and many have suffered under the weight of their creative mind. He says, perhaps the first to come to mind was Robin Williams, a man whose gifted mind was running at warp speed compared to us all. His manic nature on full display on stage, and there were times watching him on screen, you could see that he had physically lost control over his own brain. His creative side was firing on all cylinders, and his mouth and body were merely playing catch-up. Now, he was clearly trying to interpret the world, for the world, rather, the very vibrant thoughts his brain possessed. He would strut, prance, run across the stage, back and forth, to and fro, a word salad exploding from his mouth in front of an audience that appeared to be operating seconds behind. As if Robin Williams had entered a time warp where he and he alone in the room had time-traveled a few seconds ahead of all humanity and was giving us a humorous glimpse from what is out in front of us all. Now, before Robin Williams, for the older readers, there was Jonathan Winters, who possessed the same gifts but also suffered when the creative side tended to misfire. He required some repair and downtime in the human garage known as a mental hospital or asylum. 
Winters would occasionally check himself into a hospital regularly to ease the pain of having a mind that worked overtime on creative thought. But many others have suffered. So listen to some of the examples he gives here. Comedian Mitch Hedberg tried to ease his pain with drugs, as so many comedians have. He was clearly afflicted. You could almost feel his pain radiating off stage, some measure of discomfort living in that body with that mind. The way he hid behind a flop of long hair and sunglasses and told jokes staring at his shoes or even with his back to the audience, his angst was on clear display. But his simple observations spoken in a stagger and halting staccato could be devastatingly funny. Thinking of his observation that rice is the perfect food when you want to eat 2,000 of the same thing, I smile. For people who enjoy comedy, he is missed. Drugs took John Belushi and Chris Farley, two comedians who obviously felt a strong need to self-medicate to ease their racing, racing minds. And while it's easy to say they had, a dr- they had drug problems, even a casual view of their lives lived in the public eye yields a perspective that they had trouble controlling minds that raced beyond the comprehension of almost all. Belushi could make you laugh absent saying anything, just standing there on stage in a bee costume, antenna bouncing. He would make you laugh. And Chris Farley doing his motivational speaker living in a van down by the river is a classic. Watching the other actors in the scene break character from his antics makes me laugh. And he says Farley was too funny to ignore, even for the professionals on stage, who should know better than to give in and laugh themselves. When you begin to look at the genre, you realize that the gift of a comedic mind, a creative mind, bent on a realization of the absurdities of life and being able to express these foibles to the masses, can come at a high price. When the Ferrari misfires, the agony can be all too real. For example, he says, uh, one of the greatest of them all, Richard Pryor, melted down into crack abuse before our eyes. He had as agile a mind as any comedian in history. He could slay an audience, but his troubled youth always seemed to haunt him, and he had trouble keeping his demons at bay. And the more obscure but devastatingly funny Greg Giraldo A lawyer by training before moving into comedy, a man who had everything to live for, a wife, a family, a moderately successful career, also succumbed to drugs. If you go back and watch some of his roast material, he's just incredibly funny. Hold your side and cry funny. Unless you're someone who enjoys comedy and tries to follow them online or you see them live, perhaps you've never heard of Greg Giraldo. He was a man who never got the accolades he deserved. Now, he says there's a current comedian, a favorite of his, called Maria Bamford, who's very public about her own demons. She's very frank about her struggles with mental health and bouts with depression, even suicidal thoughts. And Michael Herman says, I think she's one of the funniest people alive today, and to see her suffer or speak about her issues, he says, well, it pains me from afar. She's so gifted, talented, and in his opinion, such a superior mind that he says, I wish to see her survive and thrive for many more years to come. So he says, there are times when I'm scrolling through YouTube, which curates selections. And since I've watched Maria Bamford before, uh, it will show me selections of her performances to view. And I do. He says, well, I get a sense of unease when I see those clips where her struggle is more readily evident than in others. Where you can almost feel that whatever solutions she's seeking aren't working well. And I want to give her a hug through the screen. Tell her how valued she is. How talented and needed in our world gone array. Awry, rather. I stopped on a podcast she did with a fellow comedian, and he says, I was dismayed. 
I think it was Neil Brennan, a writer for Dave Chappelle, and a stand-up in his own right. But the way he forced her to confront her issues, discuss them openly as if viewing an open wound, he says, I wanted to stop the interview, change the direction of the interview, make it stop. I felt as if he was picking at her scabs and scars unfairly and exploiting her vulnerabilities. Watching this very talented woman treated this way pained me to view. And he says, given the history of the genre, I would much have preferred to see, preferred to see her actual talent celebrated and not her struggles emphasized. What he should have been saying to her is that she possesses a superior mind, that her creative side is working at speeds that we mere mortals cannot comprehend. That she's gifted, gifted beyond others, and that though this gift can cause her some measure of pain when the cylinders get out of sync. That is when her mind is firing on all cylinders and she shares those thoughts with us. She is sharing a genius we all appreciate and admire. So he says this interviewer should have been building her up, expressing to her the debt that we owe to her. That she's pursuing a life on stage and sharing her gift with others, even at great expense to herself of needing to heal in between. He says, the comedy field is littered with too many gifted and talented who've succumbed to the pain to see Miss Bamford suffer publicly and open the wound for all to see. So, don't you too marvel, he asks, at those who have a creative ability, who can convey thoughts on what's all around us that we didn't see, we missed, we failed to identify, the ironies in life they hold right up to our nose? He says, I do wonder why, though, at the same time these people are given such a gift that it has to come with such a cost. Why does the creative side tend to have such a fragile nature? Michael Herman says, I wish that the troubled and gifted in the world of comedy would stop a moment to realize for themselves that the pain they feel is the burden of the gift being given a superior brain. The gift of being given a superior brain, rather. One that operates at speed superior to most. And so when the darkness comes, the thoughts turn ugly this is the price for a mind that can also creatively produce thought that amazes and elevates us all. In times such as these, he says, we're living through comedians to help us all get through. And I hope we don't have to lose another, but they should, they should realize, rather, this pain, too, shall pass. He says we shouldn't have to lose so many gifted and talented people to the pain that accompanies their talents. This is The Brian Hyde Show.